This show contains descriptions of violent crimes and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. A girl goes missing in a rural part of northern Sweden in May of 2013. She was last seen by her ex-boyfriend, who immediately became the prime suspect in the case. Sixteen days later, both her legs are found in an abandoned building in the outskirts of the small town of Bodham. But what happened to 20-year-old Ploy? And was her ex-boyfriend guilty or not? Welcome to episode 25 of True Crime Sweden. I am your host, Panilla. I want to start with saying thank you for all the wonderful, wonderful comments we got after the Q&A episode. You are all so sweet and I appreciate that you take the time to reach out to me. It means everything. I know we had a problem with the sound in the Q&A episode, but if you can live with it, I think it's worth listening to. So if you haven't listened to it, go give it a try. Before we get into today's case, I want to recommend a podcast that has been keeping me company on my work commute for this past week. It's a show called 33% Pulp, and it's interesting, fun, and smart. And the hosts are funny and witty without even trying to be. You get what I mean? I love listening to true crime, but sometimes I need to listen to something else. And this is going to be my new something else. But let's hear it from the hosts themselves. Here's Lindsay and Daniel. Hey Lindsay, are you ever curious about those old books with weird covers in the bargain bins? Oh my god, yes! Hey Daniel! Would you be in a book club where no one reads the whole book? Funny you ask, because that's our show, 33% Pulp. You, I, and a guest host each read a different third of a pulp novel and then recap the whole thing together. We start with context, the author, genre, themes, and so on. By the end of the third episode, you'll have heard the main plot, our commentary, and confusion. And sometimes we have companion episodes with related content from beyond the book with other podcasts. We're 33% Pulp and 100% hopeful you'll join us. Bye! Thank you so much, guys. Be sure to check them out. You will need something non-true crime when you are done with this episode. It's 33% Pulp. P-U-L-P. And now, over to today's case. This story is about a young woman, only 20 years old, who was trying to find love and happiness in her new home country, Sweden. 
Ploy or Vacharia Bangsuan, which is her real name, was born on August 1st, 1992, in Thailand. I'm going to refer to her as Ploy throughout the story because it's easier to say than Vachareya and it's also the name that she was known by uh, to her friends here in Sweden. She was the only child of Kataleya Simela, who was her mother. I haven't been able to find the name of her father, probably because he passed away when Ploy was only three years old. Some years after his passing, her mother met a Swedish man, Jan Erik Simmele, and decided to move to Sweden with her daughter. This was in 2004, and Ploy was then 11 years old. Ploy's stepfather, Jan Erik, works as a mechanic, and he has lived in the small town of Boden in the north of Sweden for all his life. He commutes to his job in Kiruna every week a four-hour drive every Monday morning and back to Boden again on Friday night. And if you want to Google map these towns, Boden is spelled B-O-D-E-N and Kiruna is spelled K-I-R-U-N-A. The three of them, Ploy, Kataleja and Jan-Erik, lived in a small house in Boden. At the time of the murder, Ploy's mother, Kataleja, studied to become a nurse. Ploy quickly assimilated to her new life in Sweden. She learned the language and found new friends. She was a good student and finished high school with good grades. After high school, she enrolled at the Luleå University of Technology to study engineering physics and electrical engineering. Needless to say, Ploy was very intelligent and diligent. When she wasn't in school, she spent her spare time practicing karate with her friends at the karate club in town. She was very committed to her karate lessons, taking classes every Tuesday and Thursday in Bodem, and Mondays and Thursdays in Luleå, where she went to school. That's quite a commitment, if you ask me practicing karate for sometimes five times a week, and on top of that, a very challenging college education. And as if this wasn't enough, Ploy also worked part-time. She delivered flyers to people's homes on weekends to make some extra money. She was quite busy. But let's go to the late winter months of 2010, three years prior to her murder. Ploy met a guy called Christoffer Johansson. Ploy was 17 years old and still in high school at this time. She was friends with one of Christoffer's friends, and she met Christoffer through him. Ploy was a very intense girl. When she had eyes for someone, she wasn't shy about it. She at this time had a crush on Daniel, Christoffer's friend and she sent him text messages and left him voice messages quite intensely. Daniel already had a girlfriend and told his friend Christopher about this girl who was interested in him. Christopher liked the intensity that seemed to be Ploy's thing, and he got her phone number from Daniel. And that's how Ploy and Christopher met and became friends. He asked her out and they started dating. 
Ploy soon forgot all about Daniel. She was 17 years old and in love for the first time. Christopher was one year older than her and had already finished high school. And he had a car, which in the rural area of Boden is a huge thing, since there are hardly no public transportation. Floy had a very busy schedule, but managed to find the time to see Christopher almost every day that spring. During the course of their relationship, Christopher spent the night at her place two or three times, and she also spent the night at his parents' house a couple of times. As you might have guessed, they were intimate with each other during their relationship, and that's nothing unusual with a 17- and an 18-year-old. But while Ploy was crazy in love, Christopher was beginning to have his doubts about their relationship. He was beginning to feel trapped by the intensity of Ploy, who wanted to see him every day. So he suggested that they should start dating other people, but still remain in the relationship. Ploy didn't like that idea at all, and told him that he was either with her 100% or they should break up the relationship. Christopher wasn't sure what to do, but said they should remain exclusive to keep her happy. Ploy was thrilled. Later that same week, Christopher went to a party with a couple of his guy friends. Ploy wasn't invited. After a long night with lots of alcohol, the guys got into a heated debate about race and color. Christopher's friend Niklas was racist and he asked Christopher how he could be in a relationship with someone from Thailand. So, in the early morning of Sunday, May 30th, Christopher called Ploy to tell her it was over. He was breaking up with her after about three months of dating, because she was from Thailand. Ploy told him to go to hell and hung up on him. After that, they didn't speak to each other in years. But Boden is a small place, and they would occasionally run into each other, without acknowledging the other's existence. They wouldn't reconnect again until July 27th, two years later. And this time, it was Ploy who reached out to Christopher. But more about that later. Let's first go back to the spring of 2011. The months that followed the breakup was hard for Ploy. She didn't even want to look at other guys. She finished high school and moved on to college in the fall of 2011, and her life circled around school and practice. She was at this time practicing karate four times a week, two of those times in her hometown of Boden. One of the instructors in the Boden Karate Club caught her attention and they became friends. Ploy sent him a friend request on Facebook, and she also got his phone number. She was starting to become romantically interested in him. And that would have been fine if it wasn't for the fact that he was married and had kids. I'm going to refer to him as Peter throughout this story. Peter was born in 1963, and that makes him 29 years older than Ploy. She was only 18 when they met. He worked as a teacher at a school in a nearby town called Kalix, 
He owned a sushi restaurant in Boden, and he was heavily involved in the karate club. Peter was of course flattered by the attention from the 18-year-old beautiful ploy, and when the two had been flirting online for about five months, they finally arranged for a secret meeting. According to later statements by Peter, he and Ploy had sex at multiple occasions during the spring and summer of 2012, always in his car. He said he liked her very much, but that he also had a hard time with his bad conscience. By the end of July, he told Ploy that he wanted to go back to being instructor and student again. But Ploy was disappointed. She still wanted him in her life. Although she probably understood somewhere deep inside that the relationship was doomed from the start. Feeling very rejected, vulnerable and abandoned, Ploy went online for comfort. And now she did something that most of you probably can relate to. When you are feeling low, doubting your self-worth and wondering if you ever will find love again, you turn to your exes. You might ask yourself, why did I ever break up with that person? He's kind of cute. You somehow forget about the bad times and only remember what an amazing time you had together. Anyway, this is what Ploy did. She contacted her ex-boyfriend Christopher again when Peter broke off the affair. She contacted him through Facebook Messenger and on July 27, 2012, she wrote, Hey you! I noticed you've moved into a new apartment. He replied four days later, on July 31st. Hi, yes, now I live in Bosedjan in a one-room apartment of 70 square meters. What are you up to nowadays? Ploy replied later that same day. All right, I see, that's nice. Do you live there by yourself? I study at Luleå University of Technology now. Do you go to school or do you work? Christopher replied almost immediately this time. Nice. Yes, I work as a janitor at the Boden Ice Hockey Arena. Do you still live here in Boden? Floyd answered. Yes, still live in Boden, but I'm thinking of moving to Luleå, probably next year. The two then continued their conversation and exchanged phone numbers. They stayed in touch by text and through messenger, but they didn't set up a date until later that year. Ploy was very busy with school and karate classes, and she had also started seeing her karate instructor Peter again. After their initial breakup in July, Ploy reached out to him again and suggested they would get together, and they did. So her initial interest in Christopher had faded. And I also think she was starting to remember how badly he had treated her while they were still together. But Christopher wasn't willing to give up Lloyd just yet. He had regretted the way he broke up with her two years prior, and he didn't care what his friends thought about her anymore. Ploy was cool, beautiful, and very smart, exactly the kind of girl he wanted in his life. 
and she had reached out to him again. It must be Faith. He kept asking her out, and finally one night after they met in a bar in Boden, she came home with him. Christopher thought it was going to be the beginning of something. Ploy just thought of him as a friend, though. She and Christopher were friends with benefits, but nothing more. This upset Christopher, who wouldn't stop fantasizing about the two of them together again. In fact, Ploy was occupied with other love interests. She was occasionally hooking up with Peter again, the karate instructor, behind his wife and everyone else's backs. But she knew it wouldn't last. So when she met a man I will call Anders in the spring of 2012, she decided to give it a chance. They met through mutual friends. Anders was a couple of years older than her. But they had fun together, and she was beginning to fall in love with him. Ploy introduced Anders to her parents as her new boyfriend by the summer of 2012. They both liked him, but Ploy's father, Janne Erik, later told the police that they thought he was a bit overprotecting and controlling of her. It was now the end of the summer of 2012. Ploy was going out with Anders, but kept in touch with Peter. After all, they met twice a week in karate class. Christopher was constantly texting and sending messages to her. But the only time Ploy responded was when she was out partying. Then things started to get very intense. Somehow Anders found out that his girlfriend was having an affair with her karate instructor. He got really mad and confronted her about it. Ploy didn't confess to anything but told him that they had a special bond. Anders was mad with jealousy and decided to hurt Peter in the worst possible way by telling his wife Linda about Ploy. So one night, Peter's wife answered the phone, and Anders was on the other line. He said her husband was having an affair with one of his karate students, and Linda surprisingly asked for more information. They talked for a couple of more minutes before they hung up. Linda was very upset and confronted Peter as soon as he came home from the restaurant. He told her about Ploy and how she was kind of obsessed with him, as many schoolgirls sometimes becomes. But he also said that he was innocent and had only tried to let her down as gently as possible. Linda believed what he was saying and they left the subject alone. Peter had now been exposed and he made it abundantly clear to Ploy that whatever relationship they had must be over for good this time. She seemed to understand what he was saying, but asked if they could remain friends. Peter said, sure, of course we can. Ploy kept sending him text messages and wanted to stay in touch almost every day. Her relationship with Anders had ended when he found out about Peter, and Peter didn't want to continue the affair. This left some room for Christopher to get back into Ploy's life. He hadn't stopped contacting her even if she kept saying how she only wanted them to be friends. They sent messages to each other and spent time together, but Ploy never told her parents she was friends with Christopher again. Ploy had an exam coming up and she knew she would be distracted by other stuff if she stayed home, so she asked if she could come over to Christopher's house to study. 
At 1.07 a.m., Ploy and Christopher made plans over Messenger to see each other later that day. It was decided that Christopher was going to pick Ploy up outside her house, and they would go to his place. On the morning of May 4, 2013, Ploy wrote a Facebook message on her wall, saying how she was going out for a run and then spend the rest of the day studying for an exam. She told her mother that she was going to a friend's house to study, and at 4 p.m. she was picked up by Christopher. And that's the last time anyone else but Christopher saw Ploy alive. She was wearing a black hoodie, dark pants, and white sneakers with orange stripes on the side. Underneath the hoodie, she was wearing a white long sleeve t shirt. She had brought her physics books with her but she left her wallet at home. Her mother asked if she was coming home for supper, and Ploy said yes. They would normally eat somewhere between 6 and 9 p.m. Cell phone records later show that Ploy's phone had connected to a tower near Christopher's house at 5 p.m. This would prove that she was picked up by Christopher and that she was at his apartment that night. At 5.04 p.m., Ploy sent a text message to Peter, the karate instructor, uh, and she also sent more messages at 5.42, 5.43, 5.47, 6.07, 6.21, and 6.40. Peter sent her back messages at 5.28, 6.13, and 7.31. The content of these messages has not been possible to reconstruct technically, but Peter was of course brought in for questioning after the police found out about him, and he stated that Ploy said in one of her messages to him that night, He's nuts, we need to talk. Peter always erased all messages from Ploy right away, because he was afraid that someone else would see them, and the police were not able to reconstruct those, and Ploy's phone was never found. When all of her phone records had been analyzed, it turned out that Ploy had tried to call 112 at 5.09. The digits had been entered, but instead of clicking the green phone button, she hit the star button before the green button, and the call didn't connect. This is one of the details of this horrible story that makes me really sad. She was obviously scared and needed help. But her call to emergency services never got through. But something happened at this time. If he tried to attack her or something else happened, we will never know. The phone was still in the same area as Christopher's house at 8.32 when it reconnected from the 3G to the 2G net. And at 8.38, six minutes later, it connected to 3G again all according to the cell tower records. Ploy's parents were expecting her home by 9, and when she didn't show up, they called her phone at 11.53pm. The phone was turned off by then, and the call went straight to voicemail. The phone records also show that the phone hadn't been turned off naturally. Apparently, when you turn a phone off, it sends a code to the tower, and Ploy's phone didn't do that. So the police came to the conclusion that the phone had either run out of battery, been crushed, 
landed in water or the SIM card had been removed. Since Ploy was always very careful about always having a charger nearby, they believed that the phone must have been destroyed in some way. Sunday, May 5th, came and went. Her parents were beside themselves with worry and kept waiting for Ploy to walk through the door. They called her phone and left messages, asking her to call them back. When she still hadn't come home on Monday, they called the Bowden police to report her missing. Ploy was 20 years old and could in theory be staying away from contact with anyone voluntarily. So after 24 hours, Jan Erik walked into the police station in Boden and gave an official statement of a missing person. Ploy's mother had opened Ploy's computer and found a Facebook conversation that she had with Peter and Christopher, and they had started to expect the worst. It was on the night of Wednesday, May 8th, the search for Ploy began. About 40 policemen, 60 volunteers from the Swedish Home Guard, Hemvernet, and about 150 people from the organization Missing People went out to look for Ploy. They also had search dogs on the ground and a helicopter searching from above. Many of her friends, including Christopher, also helped out in the search. So who was this Christopher guy, anyway? Well, his full name was Christopher Johansson, and he was one year older than Ploy. He was born and raised in a small village called Norra Svartbyn, a couple of kilometers east of Boden. His parents still live there. Christopher finished grade school with decent grades and continued to high school in 2007. But he only finished his first year. This would be his sophomore year if you compare it to an American high school. Instead of going back to regular high school, he enrolled in a so-called Folk High School, specialized for students with Asperger's. A Folk High School, in Swedish it's called Folkhögskola, is an institution for adult education that generally do not grant academic degrees. They are most commonly found in Nordic countries and in Germany, Switzerland and Austria. In the United States, a Danish folk school called Danebod, or Danebod, was founded in Tyler, Minnesota. The first folk high schools in Sweden were established in 1868. As of 2008, there are about 150 folk high schools throughout Sweden, most of which are situated in the countryside, often in remote areas. Tuition is free, and the students are liable for normal financial aid for expenses, such as accommodation and other school costs. After graduating, the students are able to study at a university if they wish. And I want to add that even though Christopher went to a school specialized for people with Asperger's syndrome, not all of the Falk High Schools are for people with special needs. Some are for people who are into art or music or something else. 
Anyway, Christopher didn't graduate from the Falk High School either. He quit after a year and a half. He hasn't had a real job for his entire life, only temporary positions sponsored by the community. His janitor job at the Bowdoin Ice Hockey Arena only lasted between August and December of 2012, and after that he went back to unemployment. Christopher has two brothers, Johan who is 10 years older than him, and Daniel who is two years younger. According to his own statements, Christopher was bullied all through grade school. It started when he was six years old and got gradually worse. When he was in eighth grade, he was diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome and ADD. When he was 15 years old, he enrolled in the Swedish Hemvan, the home guard. He had always been fascinated by weapons and wanted to learn how to shoot a G3 rifle. He wanted to get into the Swedish army, but he failed every attempt at enlisting. The military didn't want him, which was a huge disappointment to him. The last time he got rejected was on April 25th, 2013. That's less than two weeks before Ploid disappeared. He and a number of friends used to get together regularly to play airsoft, a competitive team shooting sport in which participants shoot opponents with spherical plastic projectiles launched via replica air weapons called airsoft guns. According to Christopher's friends, these get-togethers were very important to him and he would never miss an opportunity to play. Although bullied in his early years, Christopher managed to establish friendships with both guys and girls. He was quite popular with the opposite sex. Besides the relationship he had with Ploy in 2010, he was seeing a couple of other girls in the years to come. One of his girlfriends later testified to being choked by Christopher at one time during their relationship, but Ploy never said anything about Christopher being physical with her. He moved into his own apartment in the early months of 2012 and found himself feeling a little lonely. So he decided to buy a dog in the summer of 2012. The dog is a Swedish breed and I'm not gonna go into details uh, around the breed, but it is used for hunting. He called the puppy Grabben, which means the guy or the boy. Grabben was eight weeks old when he moved into Christopher's apartment. Christopher's friends thought it was a disaster waiting to happen. Christopher couldn't take care of himself. How was he supposed to take care of a dog? And they were right. Grabben was left alone a lot and wasn't potty trained properly. He would bark and howl when he was left alone in the apartment, which made neighbors complain to the landlord. It was a desperate situation. Christopher was possibly facing eviction. Many people question the story that Christopher would later tell about what happened to Graben. According to Christopher, Graben was teething in February of 2013 and happened to bite an electrical cord and was electrocuted to death. But witnesses have stated that they noticed a large pool of blood in the yard and blood spatter on the trail back to Christopher's apartment door 
at the same time as the dog stopped barking. Whether or not Christopher killed the dog, the way that he disposed of the body was also questionable. It was winter and the ground was frozen, so he couldn't bury him. Instead he carried him to the edge of a nearby river called Lule Elv and threw him in there. Problem solved. His apartment had a kitchen, a living room, a bedroom and a balcony. He also had his own car, a light blue Hyundai Sonata. The first time Christopher was questioned by the police, he claimed that Ploy had left his apartment at about 9pm, and this is a statement that he still stands by. Despite the fact that the evidence brought forward by the prosecution have proven that it's a lie. In later interrogations, he tells the police about the night in question. He says that Ploy studied for a bit, and he was watching TV. And then she put her books away, and they started making out. He says that they had oral sex, and then cuddled a bit afterwards. And then he went back to watch TV, and she went back to studying. And then she left at about 9pm. And he bases his time on that he just finished watching an episode of Family Guy on TV. After she left, he drank some beers, and then at about 10pm he drove to his parents' house. His parents were out of town, but his younger brother Daniel still lived at home, and he was home and had friends over. Christopher parked his car in the driveway and saw Daniel and his friends through the window. Just a quick side note here about the Swedish Spring. Boden, where all of this happened, is only slightly below the Arctic Circle. And on May 4th, the sun sets at 9.21pm and it rises again at 3.42am. So when Christopher walked up to the house, it was barely dark. He claimed to having spent about an hour with his brother that night. And then he drove back to his own place around midnight. His brother testified in court about this short visit. He claims that Christopher only spent about 20 minutes at the house, and that he walked in and out of the house several times, like pacing nervously before he left. At 18 minutes past midnight the same night, when Christopher had just got back home from his parents' house, his friend Robin texted him saying that he was coming to the airsoft game the next morning. Christopher replied, Okay. But Christopher never made it to the game, and the explanation is very spectacular. The airsoft team was going to meet up early Sunday morning to play, and Christopher was going to introduce a couple of new players to the game, which meant it was important for him to be present. He had only missed one game day in the past five years, so obviously airsoft was a priority in Christopher's life. And still, he decided to cancel the whole thing in the early hours of May 5th, with the wildest of explanations. I don't want to go into these explanations too much, because they are disgusting. But he testified in court, and what he said was that he had a severe case of self-inflicted diarrhea in the morning that made him have to cancel his plans with the airsoft people. 
This, he said, was caused by him playing with himself. Words like rectum, soda bottle, grease in the form of butter, and a shower hose was mentioned. Let's just leave it at that. But there was an in-depth description of all this in court. But you don't want to hear it, I promise. And I regret I read it. At 7.59, he sent a text to his friend saying the game is off. A minute later, he sent the same message to two other friends on the team. The friends tried to reach him several times, but Christopher didn't answer or provide an explanation at the time. Later that day, he was starting to feel better, so he went over to his friend Alexander's house and played video games. On Monday, May 6th, he returned to Alexander and they played some more. Later investigations of his phone revealed that he erased all text messages from and to Ploy sometime between Sunday and Monday. When asked about it, he told the police that he wanted to declutter his phone and there were just too many messages on it. One interesting thing to note here is that Christopher's phone never left his apartment during the night of the murder and the next two days afterwards, even though he went several places during that time. This is by the police believed to be because Christopher is aware that it's possible to later see where he went. This is believed to be the way he was able to get rid of the body without leaving any clues to the police. It wasn't until Wednesday the 8th that he claimed to have realized that Ploy was missing. He had gone to visit his brother Daniel. Daniel told Christopher that he had seen on Facebook that Vacharia Bangsuan was missing and he recognized her as one of Christopher's friends. When asked about it, Christopher looked very surprised and said that he needed to go home. He talked to a couple of friends and they decided to go join the search party. Later that night, at about 8pm, the police came to his apartment for a statement. He then told the investigators that Ploy left his house at 9 on the night of May 4th. The next day, May 9th, Christopher and his friends joined the search again. They talked about her phone and his friends asked if he had tried calling her. Christopher said no, and this seemed odd to his friends, they later told the police. He told them that he knew that her parents had tried calling her and she didn't answer, so he just didn't think it was necessary to try to call her himself. But his friends kept pushing him to call her anyway. What if she answered him but didn't want to speak to her parents? He finally caved in and walked a couple of steps away from them, dialing and looking like he made a phone call. But phone records later revealed that he just pretended to call, probably because he knew what had happened to her and knew that she would never pick up the phone anyway. Another interesting thing that happened during this search is that they were actually close to the place where the parts of Ploy's remains later were found. And while searching there, they found an open can of energy drink. Christopher was quick to pick it up, smell it, and then take a drink from it. Who would ever drink from a bottle found out in the woods? 
This is thought to be because he was the one leaving it there in the first place when getting rid of the body. But by picking it up now and drinking from it, he had made sure that his friends and saliva was on it, and there was a way to explain it. I can also add that this energy drink was of the brand called Burn, one exactly the same was later found inside his car. Several days went by and the whole city of Boden was looking for Ploy. Finally, on May 20th, 16 days after her disappearance, a search party from missing people entered a building called the Yellow House near the Boden Fortress, east of Boden City. The house used to be a military building, but was now abandoned. On the wooden floor of the house lay two human legs, which turned out to belong to Ploy. The legs had been washed off and seemed to have been placed there recently. All search efforts were concentrated to the area surrounding the yellow house after this, and two days later, in the woods about 150 yards from the building, they found more remains of Ploy's body. Her naked body was placed in a hole in the ground, covered with tree trunks and six rocks of various sizes. Both her legs, her hands, and the left hip ball were missing from the dead body. Tangled in her hair were pieces of transparent tape. Her hands has to this day never been found. On May 23rd, Christopher was arrested and taken into custody because he was the last person to see Ploy alive and a former boyfriend, he was immediately a suspect. The police also questioned her karate instructor, Peter, but he had an alibi and was cleared of all suspicions shortly thereafter. The autopsy showed that Ploy had two stab wounds in her chest. The upper one was shallow, but the other one had penetrated the heart and was fatal. She also had multiple stab wounds in her back. Many of them had damaged her lungs. When they examined her eyes, they found indications of strangulation, causing suffocation and death. But it was not possible to determine if she had died from suffocation or from the stab wounds. They found DNA matching Christopher on Ploy's left ankle and a row of tape matching the one found in Ploy's hair was later found in Christopher's bathroom. On the roll of tape in his bathroom, they also found a drop of blood belonging to Ploy. When they examined his car, they found blood matching Ploy in the trunk and cadaver dogs also marked at the trunk of the car. 
There was enough evidence to convict Christopher of first-degree murder in Luleå tingsrätt in October of 2013, which meant 14 years in prison. But the sentence was appealed at the Court of Appeal of Northern Norrland, and they changed it to 10 years imprisonment for manslaughter, not murder. This means that he will be in prison for two-thirds of his sentence time, and could be set free, but on probation, as soon as January of 2020. That's less than a year. Christopher was sent to Nortelje Anstalten, which is one of Sweden's maximum security prisons. And the story might have ended there, but in the fall of 2018, a documentary aired on Swedish television, TV3, featuring Christopher Johansson. But he was no longer called Christopher. He was now referred to as Kim Marie Johansson, a transgender in the process of becoming a woman. At the age of 27, she, I'm going to refer to her as a she because that's who she is today, she had finally realized where all her anxiety and aggression came from. She has also asked to be transferred to a prison for female prisoners. At the same time as this documentary in the head of a murderer, Kim Marie Johansson, aired, she sent five pages of text telling her life story to the journalist of Expressen, a Swedish tabloid. I will read some of the content now. She calls it an autobiographical short story. Here it goes. I was five years old when I realized I was different. In kindergarten, I was always placed among the boys, but I myself felt like I belonged with the girls, and this became strange. They looked like I felt inside, and it was comforting being around them. It took me years to figure out why I behaved the way I did and felt the way I felt. During my whole childhood, I felt forced to participate in sports that I didn't like. Sports like soccer, ice hockey, wrestling, basketball, and handball. The only sport I ever liked was archery, where boys and girls practiced together. When I was 13 years old, I finally understood what was going on. I was reading my biology textbook and I found the chapter covering sex education. I started reading and the realization hit me like a ton of bricks. I was a woman, trapped inside a man's body. And shortly thereafter, I decided that no one could ever know anything about this. No one would ever understand. She continued the story by describing how she was bullied, dropped out of high school, and enrolled in the Falk High School, where she let herself be sexually abused by someone. And in her second year, she claimed to having been raped, and that's why she quit school. She slowly got her life back on track in 2009, and a couple of years of stability followed. Until she turned 21, 
and her alcohol abuse intensified. She was having nightmares and drank almost every day to keep her anxiety levels in control. When her dog died, she felt like she had lost everything that had a meaning. And everything spun out of control after that. She doesn't mention the details regarding Ploy's murder or the fact that she has been found guilty of her death. Instead, she states that it felt like she was at the edge of a cliff, balancing on the ledge when she was arrested. And she finishes by saying, I am 27 years old, and my life, my real life, has just begun. And to that I just want to answer, your life has just begun, but Ploy never got the chance to live her life. You stole that away from her. During her time in prison, she has started the journey of sex change, having supervised leaves from prison to go to the gender clinic in which she has gone through a psychological inquiry and also started taking female hormones. I am all for people's rights to be able to go through this procedure. It must be horrible to live in a body that doesn't reflect who you are. But I don't think this should be something that is okay to do while being in prison for killing someone. And her request to be sent to a woman's prison haven't been fulfilled yet. Not because the prison system doesn't consider her to be a woman, but because there are no prisons for women with the same level of security. No matter what, what she did was wrong. Or maybe I should say what he did was wrong, because she was a he when the murder took place. And even though a sex change is in progress, the anger, the rage, and the loss of control over her actions will still be there when this is all done, I guess. And in just one year, she might be out on parole. But let's not spend any more time on Christopher slash Kim. The important person in this story is a young woman called Ploy. Ploy was just in the beginning of her life. She was so energetic and she had so much going for her. And all that was taken away by one person's actions. Ploy's mother couldn't stand staying in Sweden. There were too many bad memories here. She moved back to Thailand to be closer to the rest of her family. Her Swedish husband goes to Thailand as often as he can, and when he retires from work, he's going to move there too. Ploy, or maybe I should say, Vachareya Bangswan, you will always be remembered by me, and so many more. My thoughts go out to your mother and your loved ones. Thank you so much for listening. 
And before we get into today's fun fact, I just want to send a thank you to the following people for their support on Patreon. Thanks to D. Stickney, Angie R., Bjarni, Amanda H., James C., Suzanne A., Angela R., Carly S., and Anna B. And a big, big thank you to a longtime supporter, Kate M., who just moved up to the highest tier. Thank you all so much for making it possible to keep doing the podcast. And if you want to support the podcast through Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash truecrimesweden. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-m dot com slash truecrimesweden. As a Patreon, you get early access to episodes, and there will be some bonus content later this spring. And you can also support the podcast by leaving a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. I love reading the reviews. It's my go-to thing whenever I feel down. So thank you so much to everyone who has written a review recently. Enough of that, and now over to the next section of the podcast. Today's little fun fact about Sweden is actually not going to be just about Sweden, and it's not a really fun subject either. Uh, But instead it's going to be on a topic that is really important, and that we already heard a little bit about in the end of today's case. Yes, I'm going to address the topic of gender dysphoria. And I want to apologize in advance if I use a wrong term somewhere. I've been trying to find proper translations for all the terms, but I'm not sure that I got everything correct anyway. But here it goes. A person that suffers from gender dysphoria feels like he or she was born in the wrong body. A lot of people who suffer from gender dysphoria talks about how they realize that something was wrong when they were very young. And when they hit puberty, and their body starts to develop in a way that isn't consistent with the way they feel they are, they might go into deep depression. It's so important that we talk about this, and help young children who has gender dysphoria to understand why they feel the way they do. Caitlin Jenner was 64 when she went through her gender correction. That's 64 years of feeling that you live in the wrong body. There's a lot happening around this topic today. The World Health Organization, WHO, has this international classification document that is renewed every year. The one coming this May contains changes when it comes to gender dysphoria. Today, gender dysphoria lies under the section ICD-10, which is under the chapter for psychiatry. And in this new document, it's going to be listed under ICD-11, which is the chapter about conditions related to sexual health. And the name for the diagnose is suggested to be called gender incongruence. This is an important step because the diagnose doesn't belong in the psychiatric field. But it's still important that there is a diagnose code 
so people get the correct help from the health system. It takes a long time to go through the process of changing your gender. We are talking years of psychiatrist appointments and different actions. The reason for this is to rule out the risk of making a wrong diagnosis. Between 2001 and 2010, only one person has asked to change his or her gender back again. Since 1972, about 450 gender corrections has been done in Sweden, and the number of people who are diagnosed increases. Next year, about 30 gender corrections is thought to be performed in Sweden, and we have about 10 million people in this country. In Sweden, a person who is diagnosed with gender dysphoria gets help from our free health care system. A person who was given the gender male at birth but identifies as a woman gets female hormones and some sort of drug that reduces the testosterone levels. They also get help with reconstructive surgery. The surgeon takes the skin from the penis and builds a vagina. They can also get help from a speech therapist with changing the tone of their voice. When it's the other way around, when a person is given the gender female at birth but identifies themselves as male, they get testosterone and another medication to reduce the female hormones. When it comes to surgery, the breasts are removed and they get to choose if they want to go through surgery to build a small penis. The penis is made out of the clitoris that grows when the, the testosterone is added. And recently there has been a change in the law, thank God, because before 2013, a person that went through a gender-confirming process had to be sterilized as well. The six to seven hundred persons who were forced to be sterilized before 2013 has now been rewarded 225,000 kronor each. That's a little over $24,000 each. We are slowly moving towards a more understanding and tolerating world but we still have a long way to go. And even though some of these things might be hard to understand if you're not so close to them, you don't have to understand everything. The most important thing is that you treat everyone around you with respect and accept that we are different and that it's perfectly okay that we are different. And before I sign off, I just want to say that this episode was researched and written by Johanna Udstol-Friberg and also by myself. And that goes for the last episode too, but I forgot to mention that Johanna wrote that. I'm sorry, Johanna. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope to see you next time. Goodbye. Hej då!